Great to greet all of you. Thanks for being here. It's cold outside. Thanks for being here. I want to welcome everyone joining us online this morning, wherever you might be. It's a great, great joy to welcome you into our service. I haven't said this in a while, but I know a lot of you folks check us out online before you come and visit us in person. Well, we got nice cameras, but we're so much better looking in person. It's unbelievable. So you come join us in person real soon. I want you to grab a Bible this morning and go to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18, and we're going to turn our attention there as we rejoin this verse-by-verse journey through Matthew's gospel called Let's Talk About Jesus. And as we do, we come to a really powerful passage of Scripture this morning. Let me just set the context for you as we begin. And we began this journey through the gospel of Matthew all the way back in late November of 2016. And as uh, we did, I told you that since there are 28 chapters in the Gospel of Matthew and it would be a lengthy study, I was going to divide the Gospel of Matthew up into different sections. And oftentimes when we completed one section, we took a little bit of a break and I talked about something different for two, three, four weeks just to try to provide some variety to the study. But we rejoined this last week after having been away for a while. And as we did, we introduced, or I introduced rather, a new section of Matthew's gospel. It's Matthew chapters 18, 19, and 20. And I told you that we're going to call this particular section Growing Deeper. And the reason why is because in those three chapters, Matthew chapters 18, 19, and 20, Jesus takes advantage of the opportunity to teach His disciples what it looks like and what it means to grow deeper in their faith and deeper in their calling. And he began that in an unusual way because in Matthew chapter 18 and verse 1, the disciples come to him and they ask him this question, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And if you know anything about the disciples, you know that was a constant topic of conversation for them. It was always on their mind. They argued about it among themselves over and over again. And Jesus answered the question in a very unexpected way. There was a crowd there, and from the crowd, he took a small child. The Greek word there is paideon. It can mean anywhere from an infant to just a child. My best guess, I told you last week, is that it was either an infant or at least a very small toddler because in Mark's account of the same story, it says that Jesus held that child in his arms. And he said to them, in answer to their question about who was the greatest in the kingdom, these words in Matthew 18 too, he said, I tell you the truth, unless you change, and that was the key word there, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You've got to change. Don't worry about what kind of position you're going to have in the kingdom of heaven. If you don't change, you're not even going to be in the kingdom of heaven. If you don't get rid of this prideful attitude and Humble yourself, make yourself low, because in the kingdom of heaven, it's the one who makes himself low that's exalted in the eyes of God. And then he went on to teach them some kingdom truths. He taught them, number one, we enter the kingdom as children. In other words, we become like children, spiritually speaking, to enter the kingdom, to earn salvation, or not earn it, to receive salvation. We become like children, spiritually speaking. We humble ourselves. We become totally dependent upon God. And then once we enter the kingdom... As children, we welcome each other in the kingdom as we would welcome a child. We protect each other in the kingdom like we would protect a child, and we value each other in the kingdom like we would value a child. Well, as we open our Bibles again this week into Matthew chapter 18, and we pick up our text right where we left off, I want you to know that I don't see any, anything at all in the text that indicates that the context has changed, or in other words, Jesus is still teaching what it looks like to grow deeper in our faith and deeper in our calling by using the example of a little child. And as he continues that teaching, he turns his attention to one of the most important things connected to caring for a child or raising a child, and that's the subject of discipline. 
discipline. He talks about discipline. All children need to be disciplined as they are raised. Now, if you're a parent, how many of you know some more than others? But all children need to be disciplined as they're raised. I have two children. One of them needed to be disciplined more than the other, and I will just leave your imagination, to, that up to you and your imagination as to which one that was now that they're grown adults. But all children, regardless of how good they are, need some level of discipline in their life. And the Bible talks about this. God understands this and talks to us about this. In fact, the Bible talks about this in some very specific and direct ways that can sometimes be offensive to modern day parents. Let me show you a couple of verses from the book of Proverbs. First, Proverbs 13, 24. Look at these words on the screen. In fact, read them with me. Let me hear your voices. He who spares the rod hates his son, but the one who loves him is grateful to, or careful rather, to discipline him. I'm sorry, grateful. Don't be grateful to do it. Be careful. <laughs> I mean, we know the old saying, spare the rod, spoil the child, Right? How about another one from Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 22 and verse 15. Read this with me. Folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline will drive it far from him. I'll stop right there. There's a lot of other verses I could use, but we'll stop right there. The bottom line is all children, no matter how good they are, most of the time need to be disciplined. And I want you to listen really close to what I'm about to say because I don't want to get any emails from you about this. Whatever rod you use, whatever the rod is for you when it comes to disciplining your children, you need to be willing to use it because when our children disobey, they need to be confronted, they need to be corrected, and they need to be restored. And so I'll say it again, whatever the rod is for you, okay? Now, when I was a kid growing up, the rod for my mom and dad was a switch or a belt. And probably some of you can remember those days. That wasn't the rod for me when I was a parent. Now, I, honestly, I would never spank my children the way I was spanked when I was a kid growing up. Whatever the rod is for you, then you need to be willing to use it because when our children disobey, they need to be confronted, corrected, and restored. The rod, whatever it is for you, needs to be used in a way that causes your children to feel the pain of their disobedience. It might not be the physical pain because the rod for you might not be something physical, but whatever it is, our children need to feel the pain of their disobedience. And we do this because we love them too much to see them living in disobedience. That's the motivation for our discipline. If your motivation for disciplining your child is your anger, that's wrong. If your motivation is just pure punishment or anything like that, your motivation is wrong. The motivation for discipline is love, and the motivation for discipline is restoration, ultimately. And it's the same way with God when it comes to us as His children. He loves us too much to see us living in disobedience and sin because I've told you multiple times over the years that sin is a dangerous thing primarily because sin separates. That's what it does. Ultimately, it separates us from God in a way where if we come to the end of our life in that separation, we'll be separated from Him, from him for all eternity. But even as believers and we fall into sin, it can separate us from God because it can separate us from living the life that He has for us the life that He calls us to, the life He's created for us. And I hope all of us understand today that the life God has for us is far better than any life we could ever discover on our own. It's far better. And so God doesn't want to see us living in disobedience and sin. And so as Jesus continues in this text here in Matthew 18 to teach about what it looks like to grow deeper in your faith and deeper in your calling, using a child as an example, he talks about 
the need at times in our lives for discipline. And so, if you've got your Bibles open there to Matthew chapter 18 in our text, I'm going to invite you, like I always do, to go ahead and stand for the reading of the Scripture. If you're a guest with us this morning, we are so glad you're here. And I'll just tell you that we make the public reading of Scripture a significant part of our service every single week. And because we love and respect God's Word, we stand together when we do it. You follow along as I read Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 20. Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you have won your brother over. But if he will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. I tell you the truth, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything you ask for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven, for where two or three come together in my name, there I am with them. All right, there it is. You can be seated. We always ask God's blessing on the reading and the hearing of His Word. I was really convicted this past week as I studied this passage of Scripture, and not because I wasn't already familiar with it, because I'm very familiar with this passage. But I saw it in a new light. It's always been a serious and a sober passage. How could it not be? It's a passage that tells us what we do when our brother sins against us. But for the most part, I've always just viewed this as a very practical, down-to-earth, step-by-step procedure passage on what you do when someone sins against you. In fact, we could see it like that together this morning, and we could just break it down in an easy-to-remember outline like this. If you'd like to take notes right down next to number one, you could just say, the first thing we see here is the prerequisite, the prerequisite. Matthew 18, 15 begins with Jesus saying, if your brother sins against you, stop right there, if your brother sins against you. And so the first prerequisite is this has to be a personal situation for us. If your brother sins against you, Jesus is not extending an open-ended invitation for all of us to go out and be the sin police with everyone that we know. Are there times when it might be necessary for us to speak into the life of another brother or another sister because of sin in their life or in particular sin that they're committing against someone else, relationally speaking? Yes, there may be times like that, but we should always remember that when we're not directly involved in the relational conflict, we should proceed with a great deal of prayer and a great deal of caution. We can't just run off like the sin place. I'm going to put another verse of Scripture up on the screen that I'm going to use as kind of a parallel passage to help us understand a little bit better what it looks like uh, when a somebody sins against us or somebody sins and we're going to try to help restore them in terms of the prerequisite. These are Paul's words in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1. He says, brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently, but watch yourself or you also may be tempted. Now I'm going to just leave that, let's just leave that verse up on the screen for a moment. In in that verse, when I put that up there and I use that as a kind of a parallel verse to Matthew 18 and verse 15, I see three things that are important in terms of a prerequisite here. The first one is this word spiritual. He says, brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual. My first question when I read this verse is what, is, what does that mean? What does it mean to be spiritual? How are we to understand that on a practical level? Well, in the original language of the New Testament, which of course is the Greek language, the word that he uses there is the Greek word phumatikos. 
And the primary meaning is someone who is filled with and led by the Holy Spirit. That's what it means to be spiritual, someone who is filled with and led by the Holy Spirit. Now, I don't have time to go into a detailed explanation about this, and honestly, that's what it requires, a detailed explanation. So I'm just going to say this. Listen to what I'm going to say to describe this. We're talking about someone whose every thought, every word, and every action is under the control of the Holy Spirit. That's what it means to be filled with or led by the Holy Spirit. And the emphasis is on every, every thought, every word, every action is under the control of the Holy Spirit. In other words, we're talking about someone who is deeply committed, deeply committed to living a right life in the presence of God, a righteous life. The second prerequisite I see in this verse is not only do you have to be someone who is spiritual, but you also have to be someone who is humble. And I say that because you have to be humble enough to obey the last part of the verse where it says, but watch yourself or you also may be tempted. You gotta be humble enough to recognize that even though you're going to talk to someone about their sin, whether it's a brother who sinned against you or someone that you know and you're concerned about who's fallen into sin, you gotta be humble enough to recognize that there before the grace of God go what? I. And just like they fell into that temptation and that sin, you could easily fall into that temptation, that sin as well. You know who falls into temptation, who sins? It's the person who says, I'll never fall into that temptation and I'll never commit that sin. But none of us are 100% above reproach when it comes to that possibility. And so there's got to be a humility in our lives to recognize that danger. The third prerequisite I see in this verse when it comes to confronting someone about sin is not only do you have to be spiritual, not only do you have to be humble, but let's put them together. You have to be spiritual and humble enough to be able to do it gently. You who are spiritual should restore him gently, gently. When you confront somebody about sin, you need to do it as gently as possible. Isn't that the way you would like someone to do it with you? That word gently is an interesting word in the original language of the New Testament. It's the Greek word katartizo, and it was a medical term in ancient days. It was a medical term that was used to describe a doctor setting a broken bone. Now, you know what? I've been a pastor here for 17 years, and let's just all be honest. I'm living on borrowed time. I'm going to fall off this stage sooner or later (laughs) because I get out here and I walk so close to it. Sometimes I'm praying and I'm trying to find the edge. And when I do and I break my arm or my leg because I'm getting old and my bones are getting, you know, rickety, whatever doctor comes to care for me, I want them to set that broken bone as gently and as carefully as possible, wouldn't you? And so that, you know, we don't just rush off, you know, when it comes to this reality of confronting sin, we don't just rush off, you know, like a bull in a china closet. There are things we have to understand. This, first of all, in Jesus' teaching, this is you and your brother. This is you and your brother. Okay, this is when someone has sinned against you. This is very personal. But secondly, when we do this, you know, there has to be a commitment to a a deeply spiritual life. You have to be humble about this and you need to be gentle as you do this. And so this is how you start. You and your brother, you meet face to face. Jesus said it's just between the two of you. It's the exact opposite of what most people do when somebody sins against them. They go off and they tell everybody else about it without telling or talking to the person who committed the offense. Well, what if that person won't listen? Well, then step two, Jesus gives us a step two, take someone with you. 
Matthew 18, 16, he says, but if he will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If you get to the point where you need to, you've already talked to the person individually one-on-one, that didn't work, you need to take witnesses with you, then you need to be very thoughtful and very careful about who you take with you. Now, over the years, as I've been a pastor in the local church, there've been several occasions in every church I've served where there was a conflict between two people in the church and they asked for the leadership of the church to step in and, and provide some spiritual mediation. And we've talked about that in elders' meetings and prayerfully tried to figure out who are the right people the right men would be to go and be a part of that situation. We need to choose people of integrity. We need to choose people that would be unbiased. We need to choose people who would be uninvolved. You know, they would be objective. And we need to choose people who would be mutually respected by both parties. And remember, the goal of step two is just like the goal of step one, and that is to restore the fellowship between the two brothers who are in conflict. What if step two doesn't work? Well, then there's step three. Jesus says, take it to the church. The first part of Matthew 18, 17, Jesus says, if he refuses to listen to them, now he's refused to listen to you, he's refused to listen to you and the witnesses you brought. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. I want to pause for a moment. I want to point something out. This is very interesting because up to this point, Jesus has not taught anything about the church except to say back in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 16 that one day, eventually, he's going to build his church upon the rock of Peter's confession. Do you remember that? Jesus says to the disciples, who do you say that I am? And they gave him an answer. He said, who do you say that I am? Or who do others say that I am? And they gave him an answer. He said, who do you say that I am? And Peter spoke up and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. That's Matthew 16, 16. That's his confession. And Matthew 18, or excuse me, 16, verses 17 and 18, uh, Peter said, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my father in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter and on this rock, his confession, upon this rock, I will build my church. And up to this point, that's the only thing that Jesus has said about the church. But now he's talking about the church again. The word that is used for church in the original language is the word ecclesia. And for the most part, it's a word that just means a gathering or an assembly. When you get real specific about the New Testament church, it means called out ones. But fundamentally, it's just a word that talks about a gathering or an assembly. And the idea here in Jesus' process is that if your brother doesn't listen to you, and if he doesn't listen to you and two or three witnesses, then you tell the whole church because the whole church needs to pursue him for the purpose of repentance and reconciliation and restoration. Not pursue him in a way to humiliate him, but to do it prayerfully and carefully, gently but firm. Well, what if step three doesn't work? Jesus gives us a step four. He says, treat him as a pagan or a tax collector. Last part of Matthew 18, 17 says, and if he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Now, everybody look up here at me. Why did Jesus use those words, pagan or tax collector? Why? Well, the answer is really simple because those were the two most despised people in Judaism. They were the two most despised people in Jewish society a pagan, a Gentile, somebody who followed or worshiped a false god or followed or worshiped in false religion, and a tax collector, a Jewish man who had essentially sold his soul to the Roman government to get a tax franchise so he could extort money from his Jewish brothers and sisters. The listeners there would have understood clearly who Jesus was talking about and what Jesus was saying when he used the words pagan and tax collector. He said, listen, if he won't listen to your offending brother, won't listen to you, if he won't listen to you and witnesses, if he won't listen to the entire church, then this is what you do. 
as an entire church, you treat him like an unbeliever or an outcast because that's what a pagan and a tax collector was, an unbeliever and an outcast. And I know that sounds so harsh and so strong. It does. But here's what we need to understand. Jesus, God, is so concerned about the holiness of his people, the righteousness of his people. He is so concerned about the holy testimony of his church that he does not want us to tolerate sin. There's a powerful passage of Scripture. I'm going to turn there in my Bible. You don't turn there. I'm going to, you just listen because we don't have time. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul is writing a letter to the church in Corinth who had all kinds of problems, and they got one really, really big problem related to sin in the church that they are just pretty much ignoring. Listen to what he says, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 5. It is actually reported there, that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that does not occur even among pagans. What's happening in your midst is something that's so bad it doesn't even happen among unbelievers. A man has his father's wife. Incest was happening in the church. And you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief and have put out of your fellowship the man who did this? Even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit, and I have already passed judgment on the one who did this, just as if I were present. When you are assembled in the name of our Lord, assembled, that's what the church is, it's the assembly. When you are assembled in the name of the of our Lord Jesus, and I am with you in spirit, and the power of the Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan so that the sinful nature may be destroyed and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. He's saying, listen, I want you to excommunicate this guy today so hopefully he's not eternally separated from God tomorrow. You have to take such drastic steps that it might shock this man into repentance. If nothing else will work, then you have to take drastic steps. And then he goes on to say, your boasting is not good. They were boasting about how, how uh, tolerant they were, that they could let somebody who was involved in that kind of a sinful relationship just be a member in good standing. He said, your boasting is not good. And then he said this, don't you know that a little yeast works its way through the whole batch? Do you remember earlier in the Gospel of Matthew when we studied the parables and Jesus told a parable about yeast and he used yeast as a metaphor for influence? And he said, you're just a little bit of yeast in a batch of dough influences the entire batch so that it rises to become a loaf of bread. He's just telling them, reminding them that even a little bit of sin that's tolerated in the church can have a negative influence on the whole church. And he is so concerned about the righteousness and the holiness and the testimony of his church that he's saying, listen, we can't tolerate sin. We can't do it. And so he says you need to take these drastic measures. That's the last part of the process. Right down next to number three, the purpose. And the purpose behind each of these steps is the same. Step one, step two, step three, step four, it's all the same. It's always rep restoration. Always restoration. That's the ultimate goal. Now, I'm going to stop there. There's so much more I could say. There's so much more explanation I could give, but I'm going to stop there because I feel compelled to spend the rest of my time talking about a bigger issue here. I'm going to look back at Matthew chapter 18 and verse 17. This is the verse that Jesus uses for step three and step four. He says, if he refuses, this offending brother, this sinning brother, if he refuses to listen to them, 
He's not listened to you. Now he's not listened to you with your witnesses. Then he says, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. I told you, this is the first time Jesus mentions the church, apart from that simple pledge in chapter 16 to build his church upon the rock of Peter's confession. Let me ask you a question, okay? This is a significant question. How significant is it that the first time Jesus mentions the church, he mentions the church in relation to dealing with the sin of its own members. Now, let me clarify that the New Testament church has not yet begun. That doesn't happen until Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 on the day of the Pentecost when the Holy Spirit comes and fills the apostles and Peter preaches that first gospel sermon about Jesus and people, verse 37 says, were cut to the heart and they said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Acts 2.38, Peter replied, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sin and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then he continued to teach them. A little bit later, it says about 3,000 people were baptized that day and that's where the church began. And the end of the chapter says that the Lord added to their number daily those that were being saved. That's where the church began. That hasn't happened yet here in Matthew chapter 18. Some people read this and they say, well, Jesus wasn't talking about the church. He was talking about the synagogue. That's not true. You know, you know how I know that's not true? It's because you study the Gospels, and every time Jesus mentions the synagogue, he uses a completely different word. It's not the word ekklesia, which is, by the way, the only Greek word that's translated church. How many of you think Jesus was very specific in the words that he chose? I do. So in the context of Matthew 18, we could say that Jesus is referring to any group of believers who assemble in his name. But honestly, friends, the context is secondary to the clear truth communicated here. And here's the truth. Jesus wants you and I as his followers to be so committed to holiness and so committed to righteousness that he tells us that one of our first priorities together as the church should be dealing with the sin of the members, each other. What do you think a modern-day church growth consultant would say about that? I mean, you hire, let's say that we hired a modern-day church growth consultant to come uh, here to Mount Pleasant. We say, you know, we're a large church, but we want to get even bigger. So tell us how we can do that. And he comes in, he says, I'm going to meet with your leadership team, and we're going to go through this exercise called a SWOT assessment. SWOT, S-W-O-T, stands for Strengths, Weaknesses, Opportunities, and Threats. And so just imagine a piece of paper, and there's four columns, and at the top of every column, one of these words is there, Strength, Weaknesses, Opportunities, and Threats. And I want you to write this down about your church. I want you to think about your church and write down these things. And so at one point, we write down something that reads similar to this. Uh, confronting our members about their sin in line with Jesus' teaching in Matthew 18 for the purpose of reconciliation and restoration and to protect the holiness of the church. Where do you think a church growth consultant would put that on the SWAT list? Where do you think Jesus would put it? I mean, if the very first thing Jesus said about the church was the church needs to be so concerned about holiness and righteousness that there needs to be a willingness to confront its members about sin. Don't you think if that's the first thing he said about the church that that should be at least somewhere on the top of our priority list? Don't get nervous. I told you last week that story about Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5, or at least I referenced that story about 
Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5. And now in Acts chapter 5, the church has been established. It's the church in Jerusalem. There's thousands of people there. It's growing exponentially. And at the end of Acts chapter 4, we read the story about how some members of the church were willing to sell personal property and give the proceeds to the apostles to use to take care of the needs of all the people. And so one of the couples, Ananias and Sapphira, said, we got some land. We can do that. We can sell this land and we can give the money to the church. And so they sold the land and they brought the money to the apostles. And here was their mistake. They said, this is the entire amount that we got for the land. But you know what? It wasn't. They held some back. Why'd they do that? They didn't have to do that. They could have said, we sold this property. We want to give a portion of it to the church, right? There's nothing wrong with that. But they said, probably in front of everybody, we're giving the entire amount to everybody, or or, entire amount to the church. And so they sinned when they did that. And the sin that they committed is they lied to the Holy Spirit. And here's why I say that was their sin, because when Peter confronts Ananias in Acts chapter 5 and verse 11, it says, he said to Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? That's what he did. He lied to the Holy Spirit. And when Peter confronted him about that, you remember what happened? Ananias fell over and died. He fell over dead. Well, Sapphira wasn't there. Sapphira didn't show up, the Bible says, for three hours later. You know what that means? That she was three hours late to church. I'm looking forward to sharing that with the people who come to service at 1130. Because I'm, I'm wondering what they're doing all morning that they come 20 minutes late to 1130 church. So when she comes in, Peter confronts her and he basically just says, I just have time to summarize it. Is this the amount of money you got for the sale of your property? And she said, yes. And you know what happened? He confronted her about it and she fell over dead too. And then the, 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 the biggest understated verse in all the Bible is what happens next in Acts 5.11. Then it says, great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. But just a couple of verses later in Acts chapter 5 and verse 14, this is what we read. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number daily. What are we to make of that, friends? Well, first of all, I want to be really clear in in telling you that I believe what happened to Ananias and Sapphira was exclusive. Everyone say exclusive. Exclusive to the apostolic era. And what I mean by that is none of you need to worry about falling over dead when the offering bags are passed later in the service. (laughs) We don't have modern day apostles wielding this kind of spiritual authority in the world today, no matter what anybody might want to tell you. But at the same time, the book of Acts Acts is a narrative that tells us in part about the birth of the church and the subsequent growth of the church. And so the teaching is clear. God is so concerned about the holiness of the church and the righteousness of the church and the testimony of the church that he won't tolerate sin. He doesn't tolerate sin in the church. Well, listen, I've been 39 years as a pastor full-time in the local church. May of 1980 is when I began May of this year will be 39 years, and I can tell you that this is the exact opposite approach to sin that happens in most churches today, where in modern-day churches today, so much of the time, our goal is to try to make as many people as possible feel as comfortable as possible. But that's not, that's not what the goal of the church should be. The goal of the church should be the same goal that God has, and that's holiness and righteousness, a pure testimony in the world. Look at this quote from John MacArthur that I ran across this week. I don't agree with everything John MacArthur says, but I think he's a great Bible expositor, and I love this quote. He said, I have a lot of griefs about the state of the church today, but maybe the greatest grief is the unholiness of the church and its accommodation to the unsaved. 
Sometimes we're so desperate to fill up the seats in the church that we'll say and do anything to get somebody to come in and we'll say and do anything to get them to stay. I used to, when I was on the board of directors of the Solomon Foundation, we used to do pastor's conferences twice a year. And the responsibility I always had was to share a session about biblical preaching, biblical preaching, preaching the Bible. What's biblical preaching? Biblical preaching is what happens when the text of the scripture, it drives the agenda for the sermon. So I don't just get up and tell you stories and then throw in a couple of Bible verses. I walk you word by word, line by line, verse by verse through the Bible. That's what I try to do. And I would always have a question and answer time and, and people would ask me different things. And here's one thing that I always wanted to c communicate, especially to young preachers. And this is, you got to remember this, whatever you win something, someone with is what you'll have to use to keep them. Whatever you win someone with is what you'll keep them with. So if you win someone with entertainment, you got to entertain them forever to keep them. If you win someone by promising to do whatever they want, Every time they're unhappy about something, they tell you what their unhappiness is, you say, I'll change that immediately. You've got to do that forever to keep them. And that's what we do sometimes in the modern day church. Well, that's not the model that we see in the New Testament, friends. That's not the model. So, what are we going to do? What are we going to do as a church? How are we going to understand this? Because I'll tell you, I'm not, I'm not advocating the wholesale... Uh, release of all of us to run off and start confronting each other about sin. Because first of all, you know, there are times when we just need to overlook it. The book of Proverbs says a man's wisdom gives him patience. It is to his glory to overlook an offense. And sometimes, you know what, if you're offended by something or someone, the best thing you can do is just let it go. That's the most spiritual thing you can do. And remember the prerequisites. If you're going to go and you're going to confront somebody about sin, then you, you better be deeply committed to righteousness in your life you better be humble enough to know that you could fall into sin just as easily as anybody else and you need to be willing to do it gently. You need to be spiritual and humble enough to be gentle, be gentle about it. So I'm not advocating this full cell release. I'm not commissioning everybody today just to go out and have at it. Well, what are we going to do? Well, let me give you three things. Brian, you come and you be my accountability partner to bring this to a close. The first thing I've got written down here is we're going to remain committed to preaching the whole counsel of God's word. Second Timothy chapter three, verses 16 and 17, Paul writes these words to Timothy, who was a young preacher at the time. He says, all scripture is God breathed. Now notice this, notice these four things and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. We're going to teach and preach the whole counsel of God's word. That's, the be that's what I've told you before about preaching verse by verse through the Bible, which we do so much of the time. The best thing about preaching verse by verse through the Bible is you don't ignore any of the parts. The worst thing about preaching verse by verse through the Bible is you don't ignore any of the parts. Because sometimes it's difficult and it's hard for people to hear. But we want to be so committed to this that we have this underlying attitude, and I'm gonna say this at the risk of being misunderstood, especially anybody who's a guest here who doesn't really know me, but we're going to do this because we don't want to have a church that makes everybody comfortable all the time. When I go to church and I got sin in my life, you know what? I don't feel comfortable. I don't. 
The second thing we're going to do is we're going to continue to embrace and try to promote the importance of relational discipleship. We, we believe that people grow best in community. I want you to come here and be a part of the big corporate worship experience, but I also want you to be a part of a small group, a home group. I want you to be in a Bible study. I want you to be, have an accountability partner because it's in, in those deeply personal relationships where we invest in each other's lives, where we have the permission and the freedom to confront one another about sin. And number three... We're going to make it our goal. We need to make it our goal, all of us, to pursue holiness in our lives. To pursue holiness. That means that we have to be honest about our sin. I need to be honest about my sin, and you need to be honest about your sin. Even the sin of self-righteousness that some of us hang on to, where we live out the example of the Pharisee that Jesus talks about in the Gospel of Luke, the Pharisee who stood and prayed and said, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. Remember that? In contrast to the tax collector who beat his breast and couldn't even, wouldn't even bring himself to look up to heaven and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus said it was that tax collector that went home justified that day, not the Pharisee. And that includes all of us who at times look at other people and look at their sin and say, oh, well, we hate their sin, but we love the sinner. Well, let me just make a suggestion. How about we all just focus on hating our own sin before we get worried about hating someone else's? I'm going to put a couple of verses up on the screen, and this is how we'll close. This is Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. And we're going to read those together, but we'll read them together thoughtfully as a prayer, and then I'm going to close in prayer. I want to hear your voices. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Let's make that our prayer. Father, we love you and we thank you for the chance to study the Bible together today. And we trust your spirit to convict us, to guide us and direct us. Help us to respond in humility and help us to be serious about living holy lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Stand together with me like we always do and let's just sing for a minute.